In 2016, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, you probably know him, famous actor, American actor, starred in a movie called The Revenant. You'll see it right here. It's the true story about an American frontiersman uh, in the early 19th century uh, named Hugh Glass. You can see Hugh Glass played right here as um, Leonardo, or Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio played as Hugh Glass. It's a vicious and it's a brutal story of, of Glass's survival in, in the rugged wilderness. He's nearly killed by an Ameri a Native American tribe, and then he's mauled by a bear, and then he's left for dead uh, by all his mates in his uh, fur, fur trapping party. And then one of those guys in his party, a guy named Fitzgerald, murders Glass's own son. The movie then shapes into this classic revenge story. Glass, with his life just, just throughout the whole movie, hanging by a thread, he treks through the brutal wilderness to hunt down Fitzgerald and exact revenge. Well, the story we're looking at today in, in 2 Samuel 2-3, to now we only read a portion of that just now. If we, if we read the whole thing, we had been re reading for another seven or eight minutes, so uh, I saved you that. So we only read the, the, the last portion of the story, but the, the story we're looking at today is also another kind of revenge story. The, the question that really emerges from the opening chapters of 2 Samuel that we're now in is this. H how will God's kingdom be established? How will David, as, as Israel's king, or as God's chosen king, establish his rule? Will he establish his rule by vengeance and brutality? After all, that's how most ancient kingdoms worked, isn't it? Well, the narrator of our story in 2 Samuel wants to make it very clear. God's kingdom will not be established on the basis of vengeance. Now, before I get any further, I should make one slight qualification about vengeance. Vengeance isn't all bad. Behind the idea of vengeance is the, probably the more palatable idea of justice, fairness, law. And when law has been broken, when injustice has been served, we desire recompense. To use a very easy illustration, if you know, if, if you steal a hundred quid from a sweet old lady, it, the justice demands that you repay that lady the hundred pounds. That's recompense. That's fairness. That's just. That's law. You can even feel the rightness of revenge at the very end of this story about the revenant. That that movie, as as at the, in the very last scene, Glass has tracked down. Fitzgerald, who has murdered his son, and he's standing over him. And at that point, no one watching the movie, I think, sympathizes with Fitzgerald. And you're thinking, oh, just, just finish him off. The guy's such a dirtbag. Well, the, the Bible paints a picture of vengeance that simultaneously upholds the need for justice, but at the same time, it warns us that taking personal revenge will end in absolute chaos and devastation. The, the Bible offers a path for justice without embracing personal payback. 
And we're going to explore how the Bible talks about vengeance and, and revenge today through this story about just brutal politics in the ancient world in, in 2 Samuel 2 to 3. Now, a quick note as we, side note, as we, um, as we get started, the story has several kind of players and characters in it, and I think it can get confusing as I was writing, uh, writing out the sermon. I, I was getting confused about which, which person's which. So if you have that worship program, I would look at it because at the very top, I've just put a little kind of diagram of, okay, this, when I'm talking about Abner, this is where he lies, and this, if I'm talking about the, the lad named Asahel, he, he's over here. So that might help you sort out who's on whose side as we walk through this story. This story is told in three acts, and that will kind of provide the three points for this talk today. Acts number one, a bloody battle. Act one, a bloody battle. Well, Saul is dead, and there's a vacuum of power in the kingdom of Israel, isn't there? David, of course, has been chosen by God as, as the next king over Israel, as the next king of his kingdom. Remember, way back in 1 Samuel, that seems like a very long time ago, he was anointed by the high priest Samuel. So now in the opening chapters of, or so in the opening scene of chapter 2, the tribe of Judah, that, that southern kingdom of Israel, I had a kind of this fancy map I was making, but I didn't get it done, so you'll just have to imagine it in your mind. The, the southern half of Israel, the tribe of Judah, they acknowledge and they, and they appoint David as their king. They immediately recognized this was God's choice and they made him king. But the commander of Saul's army, a chap named Abner we just read about, he isn't just going to give up his nice government job, okay? He's got, he's got a great going on right now. And if David's now the king, well, he's, he's lost everything. So he's got a plan. Chapter 2. Now that all the strong and impressive sons of Saul, they've all, they've all been killed in battle. We, we learned about that a couple weeks ago. Abner will have to make do with his slightly less impressive son, a guy named Ishbosheth. Now, now, Abner, of course, knows full well that David has been chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. He even admits it in the next chapter. We just, we just read about that. Abner knows this is God's choice. And yet, he still takes Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and he unilaterally crowns him as king over the northern kingdom of Israel. So as we enter this story, we have something tragic happen. Israel, God's kingdom on earth, is split in two between the northern tribes and the southern tribe of Judah, where Ishbosheth is the king of the north and David is the king of the south. And as you might expect, a bloody battle ensues. And if it's not bad enough that Abner has already um, opposed God's will, of, of God's choice of king, now Abner becomes the aggressor. He, he brings the troops, his troops of the northern kingdom, down to a town called Gibeon, right on the edge of Judah. And he waits there, waiting for Joab, the commander of David's army, to meet him. I just want to take a second here and go to the next slide. You know, it's easy for Abner... To look at Abner, he seems so foolish here, doesn't he? This is the commander of Israel's army. He knows full well David's the rightful king. He even admits it. This is just blatant rebellion. You see, David's kingship doesn't suit Abner's personal preferences. 
But you know, I, I almost imagine that maybe Abner, he, he, he at least formally worshipped the same God, right? I wonder if he started to rationalize his decision to choose Ishbosheth instead of David. David's not perfect. He, you know, he, he made just as many mistakes as Saul. Why should he be king? Or, you know, David's a posh southerner. And he's never going to be the right kind of king for these northerners up here in northern Israel. You can see that happening, maybe. Well, this isn't so uncommon today for Christians, is it? Opposing God's will? We could throw out a hundred applications, but let's just think of a few. God, God commands believers to commit to a, a body of, a community of other believers, right? It's a command, it's a clear command by God. And yet so many Christians, so many followers won't obey God's clear instruction. God, God gives commands to his followers about how to treat marriage as a covenant that, that, that displays his commitment to his own people. And yet Christians often, without biblical warrant, just dissolve marriages. God commands his followers to seek justice and show mercy to the, to the poor and the fringe of society. And yet, many of his followers just ignore that in order to collect power and money in their pockets. God commands his followers to submit to rightful authorities and to government. And yet, sometimes his followers only submit to authority or submit to government when it suits them. Here's my point. We, as, as followers of, of, of King Jesus, as, as loyal subjects to King Jesus, we don't get to, we don't get to pick and choose which, bits, which, which commands, which bits of Jesus will follow. That's, that's not how allegiance works, is it? To trust God is to trust that his commands are good for us. And then it, to, to trust God and put your allegiance to God is to trust and submit and submit allegiance to his commands even when they feel slightly uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, to, to submit to God only when it suits you is really only submitting to yourself under the guise of God, isn't it? And it's not very hard to submit to yourself. It's what we do naturally. So I think what this comes down to is whose impulses for life are you going to trust? Are you going to trust your own impulses? Okay, I'm going to trust my instincts on this. Or are you going to trust God's instincts for your life? Well, back to the story. The commander of David's army, southern kingdom, is a guy named Joab. And he responds by bringing up his troops up to Gibeon, and now David's army, which were led by Joab, and the northern kingdom, led by Abner, are at a standstill between this pool in Gibeon, and the armies are standing across from one another. And so they do something that happens in ancient warfare. We've already actually already seen this. They, sent, they send a group of representatives from each, from each army to fight the battle for them. It, it's kind of... Okay, it's kind of the, the early way of saving a bit of bloodshed, you know. Instead of having all the, the whole armies fight together, we'll send 12 guys from our side, and you send the best 12 from your side, and we'll let them duke it out. And that's exactly what happens. This actually already happened once, if you remember, in 1 Samuel. What's the, probably the, the most famous version of a representative battle? David and Goliath, that's right. Instead of having the whole armies, they're, they're at a standstill, and the Philistines say, okay, well, we've, here, we've got the trump card. This is our... This is, uh, yeah, this is our royal flush. Here we have uh, this Goliath, this guy that's going to just 
destroy any one of your best warriors. And of course, Israel is all scared. And then David comes out and they have this one-on-one standoff that's supposed to kind of stand for the whole battle between the whole armies without having to kill them all. So what happens in this 12-on-12 battle in 2 Samuel 2 is it's bloody, it's gory, and basically it's a draw. In, in hand-to-hand combat, these guys both kill off one another. And, and when each army on either side realizes that it's a draw, a massive battle kind of ensues. And at the end of the day, David's army, led by Joab, wins the day. And Abner and his army of the northern kingdom, they begin to retreat. Act two, a deadly chase. But that's not enough. That victory is not enough for one of David, one warrior in David's army. Joab's brother is a guy named Asahel. And he wants Abner to pay for his disloyalty to David. So after the victory's already been won, he doesn't stop fighting. Ab- Asahel chases after the retreating Abner. And, and what you have, you have this kind of hilarious, well, it's, it's sad, but it's also this kind of comical dialogue between Abner, who's retreating for his life, and Asahel, who's, who's coming after him. And so you have Ab- Abner running away saying, hey, Asahel, you know, stop chasing me. And then Asahel's running forward and saying, absolutely not, I'm coming after you. And then, and then Abner turns back and goes, hey, just, just get one of the younger soldiers behind me and take, you know, kill him and take everything he's got. What a great leader, huh? And, and, you know, Asahel doesn't want one of the younger guys. He wants Abner. So he keeps on chasing. And then Abner turns around again and says, listen, if you keep on coming after me, I don't want to kill you, but I'm going to. I will turn around and I'll fight you and it's not going to end well for you. Well, Asahel is determined and he keeps on going. And sure enough, Abner turns around. He's a more skilled warrior than Asahel. He plunges the knife into his stomach, and Asahel dies. You're going to begin to see a pattern in these stories in chapter 1 through 4 of 2 Samuel. Why wait for God to punish his people, or punish people, when I can do it myself? It's hard to know exactly what Asahel's motivation is in in coming after Abner. Does he want glory for killing, you know, David's greatest enemy? Does he want fame for just, you know, killing a mighty warrior in in an epic battle? Or probably more likely, does he simply just hate Abner and loathe his disloyalty to David? And he just, he wants to have him. He wants to have revenge. Well, whatever his motivation. Asahel cannot control his desire to kill Abner. It it consumes him. It it controls him. He won't listen to reason. The the battle has already been won, but he doesn't care. He won't listen to the warning from Abner himself. That desire to kill Abner ends up killing Asahel. And isn't isn't that just a picture of what sin is in the Bible? A desire takes root in the heart. It consumes us. Then it begins to control us. We stop thinking rationally. We don't listen to wisdom. We don't look at the consequences of what that sin will do to us. And then the sin just wreaks havoc and devastation in our life and in the lives of others, doesn't it? 
famous uh, Puritan theologian named John Owen from Oxford that said, uh, you better be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And isn't that true here? Act three. And this really will become the focus of the talk today, a vengeful murder. Act three, a vengeful murder. So as the struggle between the house of David and the house of Saul continues, what's clear in chapter three, and it mentions this by at the very beginning of chapter three, David's rule and authority are growing and growing and growing, and the house of Saul, led by Ishbosheth, is just becoming weaker and weaker. And this comes to a climax in chapter three when Ishbosheth accuses Abner, the commander of his army, of essentially trying to steal his wives. Now, this is a this is a treasonous act, okay? Because in the ancient world, if if you slept with the concubine or the wife of another king, that was a claim to I'm taking over the throne. What's yours is mine, I'm taking over the throne. So this is a, a serious accusation that Ishbosheth is making towards Abner. And it, it could be true, who knows? But Abner, Abner is so furious that Ishbosheth would accuse him of such behavior that he defects from the northern kingdom to David and Judah and the southern kingdom. He offers David his loyal services. Abner's, I think we have to be careful too, Abner is not going to David because he's had some kind of change of heart. You know, he all of a sudden, I really need to follow God, I'm going to repent here. No, that's not, what, that's not what's happening at all. Abner is making a calculated and a, a political move here, right? His career in the northern kingdom is over, and he knows the only chance I have of really my life and a, a future career is if I give my services to David. Well, naturally, David welcomes the defection of the highest-ranking military officer of the northern kingdom, his greatest enemy. Of course, he's got a few stipulations. We can't get into that today. But I want you to notice. Notice how David is building his kingdom. He's acting shrewdly. He's not acting viscerally and lashing out in anger. He's not being the aggressor like Abner was. He's being patient. He's allowing God, right, to establish his kingdom in his own time. It's very interesting. Even at the, the beginning of chapter 2, David, before he goes and, and gets an a, anointed king uh, in Judah, he, he doesn't just go down there. The, the narrator is very careful to say David first sought God's counsel whether to seek the anointing of the king, even though he, he knew he was already going to be anointed. Now enters Joab. Remember the commander of David's army? The brother of Asahel who was killed by Abner? Well, he's been off fighting David's battles, and now he returns to Hebron, which is at this point the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. And of course, he comes back home to find out that his arch enemy, Abner, is now taking a role in David's government. He's now working for David, Abner, and, and, and Joab is livid. How dare David welcome the defection of Abner, the one who opposed David's kingship and murdered my brother or killed my brother in battle? In chapter 3, verse 27, we see how Joab responds. 
Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into an inner chamber, as if to speak with him privately, and there to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel. Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. A murder motivated by personal revenge. The narrator is telling us Abner's just like his brother Asahel. He can't wait for God to distribute justice. He's got to do it himself. Who's got time to wait for God? It's, it's as if Abner, it's as if, sorry, it's as if Joab thinks, I'm more reliable to distribute justice than God is. It's as if Abner's saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Revenge. It, revenge isn't something that on, only primitive barbaric warriors struggled with, okay? That's maybe what you're thinking. It's probably kind of what I thought when I first read this. Oh no, it's very much a, a problem for 21st century modern people just like ourselves. The only probably major difference for most of us is that we're a bit more sophisticated in the ways we act out on our revenge than, you know, stabbing people in the stomach, I hope. To give you a personal illustration, I I can specifically recall a moment last year um, when revenge flared up in my own life. Sarah and I are in the house and we are having a, a discussion uh, about, to put it nicely, about parenting. And um, in this discussion, Sarah had said, by the way, I've asked Sarah if I could share this. Sarah said something uh, to me that made me feel like I was a lazy and slightly inadequate parent. And just to note, she was probably entirely right and exactly right in what she said, just for the record. But, but the point is, it, it still made me feel like I was a lazy and an adequate parent. And um, I was hurt. What I should have done, probably in, in that case, is one, I should have just received the critique and learned from it. Or two, I should have told Sarah, I was hurt by that right? But what do you think I did? Revenge. I thought to myself, I can make her pay. She hurt me, I can hurt her back. So I looked up the stairs, grin on my face, and I used my words to put the knife back right at her. How do you think that went? Not so well. I did repent, by the way. <laughs> oh, revenge shows up in so many ways, doesn't it? We can exhibit revenge by, you know, revenge isn't always the sucker punch in the face or the, the screaming insult. You know, revenge often shows up just as our silence, doesn't it? I'll let him or her feel my displeasure by shutting them out. Or maybe we can show our revenge by withholding love or withholding money. This happens when sometimes when, when children wound parents, especially as they grow older. I'll show that ungrateful kid how much they really depend on me. What about when you feel slighted at uh, 
at work, or maybe when you're wounded by a friend, or maybe wounded by a church member. What's your instinct? Payback or peace? You see, the point here, this next slide here, is that vengeance doesn't belong to Abner. That's the point of this story. Vengeance doesn't belong to Abner. When David hears of Joab's revenge murder, he tears his clothes and he weeps. David doesn't want his kingdom to be built on murderous retaliation. I mean, what kind of message would that send to the world about God's kingdom? But notice, it's not that David is unconcerned about justice or punishing evil. Oh no, David is very concerned with punishing evil when it's done rightly. Look at David's final words in chapter 3, verse 39. And today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zariah, that's Joab and Asahel, they're too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evil doer according to his evil deeds. Here's the thing. Vengeance doesn't even belong to David, ultimately. It certainly doesn't belong to Abner, and it doesn't belong to you or me. But why? Why? Why does vengeance not belong to us? Why not settle the score? It feels so nice. Three reasons here at the end. The first reason is this. Actually, yes, first reason is this. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. It's probably not the most comforting of points we've ever had, but it's true. It's the Lord who ultimately must repay. It's the Lord who must avenge. And the reason is just simple. You and I, we're sinful, we're we're biased, and we're limited people. We're sinful. We sit in the seat of the guilty. You can't... You're in the seat of the guilty. You can't just move seats and sit in the the seat of the judge. We're biased. We trust those close to us. We're skeptical of others. We often believe those things that suit our own purposes. We're biased. But, But most of all, friends, humans, we're limited. We never have the full picture, do we? We we can't know the heart motivations someone we don't know the extenuating circumstances we don't know all the influences and factors that led to the the wounding our knowledge and insight is limited but in god there's not a trace of sin there's no bias there are no limits of knowledge and insight All things are just laid bare before God, and he sees and he understands all the details perfectly. God's judgment is entirely perfect and entirely righteous. In fact, no self-defense is needed before, before God. Why? Because God knows the defense better than the defendant. He sees it perfectly. So you're not good enough to judge, to, 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 to be the avenger. 
two, don't take vengeance because you can show them who you trust. Show them who you trust. Do you remember in, back in 1 Samuel 29, Saul is delivered once again into David's hands. And David's friends come to him and say, these sons has arrived, Joab, his brothers, here you go. God's given your greatest enemies to you on a platter, mate. Take revenge. But David, David won't do it. David says in, in 29 verses 10 and 11, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die, but the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. David's making a declaration of trust there. David's trusting. What is David trusting? David's trusting that God knows how to avenge and when to avenge better than David knows how to do that. That's what David's declaring in that moment. And, and in our own story, 2 Samuel, verses chapter 3, verse 31 through 34, he, he instructs the people when Abner dies to lament and, and grieve for Abner and the injustice done by Joab. When you, when you resist the urge for payback, you're telling the world, not that you don't care about justice, that's not what you're telling them. You're telling them that you trust God to enact justice better than you can. That's what you're doing. And don't miss this. David is the king of Israel, God's representative on earth. If there is anyone who should feel the power to take vengeance, it would be David. And still, David as the king submits under the kingship of God. Third, third reason not to take vengeance. Forgiveness is just a better way. In the Bible, forgiveness is a better way forward. Listen, when, when we're wounded by someone, it hurts. Thank you. That was compliments of uh, our Hudson there. Anger swells within us. And we're tempted to deal with our pain by pummeling the one who pummeled us. That, that's what we're tempted to do. Okay. We feel that we've been pummeled by someone else's action, and it's this kind of cathartic release if we can pummel the pummeler. Most of the time, justice isn't our goal, right? Defeat is. Forgiveness is just a better way. Not because it denies justice. No, no, no. In, for, in forgiveness, the victim absorbs the pain. To use my analogy from earlier, right, the person who has been robbed of a, a hundred quid, for, for them to forgive the debt of, their, of the person who has robbed them, to forgive that debt requires, it doesn't mean no one suffers, it means the person who was victimized absorbs that cost, doesn't it? Forgiveness doesn't imply that there are no consequences. Forgiveness implies that the victim has absorbed the consequences instead. And of course, friends, if you're not a Christian here today, this is the heart of the, the Bible's message. 
This is the heart of the Bible story. This is, the, this is what we call the gospel. We offended God. We offended God. And instead of pummeling us, God pummels himself in the person of his son. When God forgives us, it does not mean that there are no consequences. It doesn't mean that. When God forgives us, it means that he has taken on the consequences upon himself. He has absorbed the pain that we deserved. Friend, God did not get even with you. He got gracious with you. So, Paul says in Colossians 3, Christians, forgive others as God has forgiven you. That's, that's what we mean when we say live out the gospel. Living out the gospel is that. We now have a motivation to not seek revenge that David couldn't have dreamed of. We live in light of, and we live as recipients of, Jesus' costly forgiveness. It's grace that we have received in the gospel that should motivate us to extend that same grace to others. But friends, I want to be clear here. I said that forgiveness is a better way, but it's certainly not an easier way. Forgiveness is never easy because it's never painless. Forgiveness right at its heart is absorbing the pain instead of inflicting that pain back on the other person. But when you forgive, you show them the heart of God. You honor the grace that you received in the gospel. You provide a better path forward for reconciliation and transformation. Why? Because you're pointing them to something better than even justice. You're pointing them to grace. But you know, Jesus, Jesus takes it a step further. He takes forgiveness a step further. In Matthew 5, Jesus is on a mountaintop giving a bit of a lecture. You know what he's lecturing on? He's lecturing on, he's telling everybody what the kingdom of God should look like. Okay, so this is, this is a momentous time in, in the history of the world. Jesus, the Messiah, is on a mountaintop, and we all want to know, what does the kingdom of God look like? And he's explaining it to people. And, and he says this in, the, in, in chapter 5 of Matthew. He says, you've, had, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and of course, he's, re he's referring to that most ancient and basic principle law of, you know, vengeance or, or justice that's commensurate and, and is also measured. Nothing more than an eye, nothing less than an eye. It's the ancient law called lex talionis. But you know, the radical thing about Jesus' teaching is not that he says, forgive without retaliation. That, that, I mean, that's a big deal, but that's not the most radical thing. He, he continues by saying, no, 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 bless those who persecute you. Love your enemy. Someone takes your shirt, give them your cloak as well. 
isn't that just an extension of the gospel? Jesus doesn't simply absorb your pain, absorb your death. He doesn't just wipe your slate clean, does he? That's not all that Jesus does. He gives you his righteousness. He makes you the enemy, the offender, a beloved child of his kingdom. He takes you, the enemy, and gives you a seat at his table. You're in table fellowship with Jesus. He doesn't just not retaliate. He actually does good to the person who is his enemy. Bless those who persecute you. Okay, in conclusion. Luke, how can we do this? Never take vengeance, never give revenge. Isn't it just a denial of justice? After all, you said, you said vengeance can be good in the beginning. There's something right about it. Friends, there, there is no denying justice here. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Bless those who persecute you. Do not take revenge, but leave room for, the, for God's wrath. For as it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. All wrongs will be made right. All sin will be punished either in hell or on the cross of Jesus Christ. So what do we, what do, we do then? Entrust your wounds and trust all your wounds to the one who always judges justly. The movie I referred to at the beginning of this talk called The Revenant, it finishes with Hugh Glass, right up there, you see, Leonardo DiCaprio, kneeling on top of Fitzgerald, his son's murderer. Now, now Glass has risked his, his very life to get to this moment. Revenge has fueled a bloody and brutal journey to track down Fitzgerald. And now at the end of the movie, knife in hand, Fitzgerald is pinned against the ground. Glass is on top of him. This is the moment he's bled and been waiting for. But there's something else going on in the story. Throughout the entire movie, Hugh Glass has been, he has been on the precipice of death throughout the whole thing. It's as if there is some kind of fate keeping him alive. And as he walks through this journey, he, he meets this Pawnee Indian man and, and, and they're having this conversation. And he, he, he gets to the point where he understands that even though every, all the human will and all the men around him are, are planning and scheming to, to end his life, he, he finally trusts that there is a supreme being who has you know, direction over his fate and that he is a man destined to live. And while all the human will continually exerts its plan to kill Glass, Glass begins to entrust his life to what he calls the greater being, or what the Pawnee Indian calls the creator. And so in this final scene, he stands over Fitzgerald, ready to exact the final blow and get vengeance 
and he relents. It's, it's Glass's final act of surrender to the Creator. Just as he entrusted his own life into this supreme being's hand, now rather than taking Fitzgerald's life, he also entrusts Fitzgerald's life and fate to that same supreme being. I love what one movie critic, how he summarized the final scene of that movie. He said this, on, on, the, surfeit, on the surface, it appears that glass saves Fitzgerald's life at the very end of the movie. But in reality, Glass saves himself from becoming just like the enemy he so hated. Let's pray. Father, help us not to Help us not to, to act as if we are God. Vengeance is not ours. We're sinners. We're biased. We don't see rightly. We're limited. And more than that, we sit in the seat of the, of the sinner, not in the seat of the judge. Father, when we're slighted, help us not to take vengeance, but help us to bless those who persecute us. Not because we deny justice, Lord, but because we have, we have entrusted you with all of our wounds. And Lord, I pray that we would do this most profoundly because it has already been done for us. Thank you. Although we offended you, thank you for not pummeling us, but pummeling yourself instead. So that we can know grace. Now help us to forgive as you have forgiven us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ.